Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Always pursue things you're interested in, because if you're not interested in it, you'll not do very well. And if you're in a job that you're not interested in, you're bored, go and find another one. Today I'm talking to Tim Stone. Tim is a prominent expert on energy and civil nuclear. He's chairman of the Nuclear Industry Association, the trade body for the civil nuclear industry in the UK, and chairman of Nuclear Risk Insurers, a leader in nuclear insurance supporting over 300 nuclear sites around the world. And Tim was awarded a CBE in 2010 for his services to the energy industry. In his free time, Tim likes to play classical music. So welcome, Tim. It's great to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andy. So let, let's just start with, with your classical music. What instrument do you play? And is there one piece of music that you always go back to and enjoy playing? That's really interesting. Yeah. Yes, I'm a double bass player, um, which in certain circles when I was a banker was referred to as the big fiddle. And uh, the piece of music I go back to uh, is a... Um, it's a piece by Foray, and um, it's uh, it's the Requiem. It's just an absolutely gorgeous piece of music. So um, I was going to say a solo piece, but um, nobody's ever heard of them. There's a, there's a wonderful Italian guy called Bottasini, who's a, um, a sort of Paganini of the bass, and he wrote a fantastic piece for bass and violin. <clears throat> and there are places where the bass is playing the top line and the violin's playing the bottom line. So you sort of bent double over the thing and, um, up in the stratosphere, which is one that I've I've played never in public, but I've played it with a um, uh, a niece and got all the way through it. But it's hard work and it's huge fun. But it's, it's therapy. It's yeah, absolutely. And I know that piece because that is one of the few classical albums that I ever bought. And I mean, I play guitar, and so I know about chords and musical theory. And it's actually quite a simple underlying structure, isn't it? But the but the but the way that it's it's used in the melodies and the the interweaving of the harmonies is beautiful, just exquisite. And um, I remember playing, uh, pl- I played it lots of times. But I played it once for um, one of the Oxford schools, and there was a harpist uh, next to me, and um, the combination of, of the harp next to you and the music, and you just sound like you just feel like you're in heaven. Just absolutely fantastic. And the other thing, just on the link, the guitar link, is I actually taught myself to play the guitar like lots of kids did in, uh, in my teenage years. I ended up playing the bass because I found one at school after a, um, a party, and the bottom four strings on the guitar are the same tuning as the bass, and so the fingering patterns. I picked the thing up and I could actually play a scale on it. I couldn't do much more. Um, but it w- was from there that I then went and had lessons and uh, um, and became a bass player and uh, almost became a professional at one point. Thank goodness I didn't. <laughs> yes, we might be having a different conversation if you had. <laughs> so um, you're part of a, a sort of close family. You spent your early life in, in Catcliffe, close to Orgreave Pit, where your, your grandfather worked. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your early childhood. Your father had been in Bomber Command and your mother was was running a, a, a car dealership during the war. So it sounds like an interesting background. Yeah, they met in uh, what was at the time called the Youth Employment Service, <clears throat> uh, where in fact my mum was my dad's boss. Um, 
and we ended up in a, uh, I was born and raised in a house in Catliff. <clears throat> My grandparents lived up the hill and I was pushed around uh, up to Orgreave and around the pit in a pram, uh, which exquisitely symmetrically <clears throat> is where NAMRC is now. So uh, that site has a particularly personal interest. Um, but yeah, that, that was my starting point. And um, basically I found that my entire family had moved up from South Wales and Somerset and Norfolk and Wiltshire and God knows where else, up to the area for steel and coal. <clears throat> so I grew up in a steel and coal context, virtually none of which is there anymore. It's, it's a, uh, it's strange, but it was, it was a lovely childhood. And I can, I've, <clears throat> I am blessed or cursed with a pretty good memory. I can re even remember still being in a pram and <clears throat> I can remember rationing books and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's, it was a it was a wonderful childhood, and I was let loose to do things and crawl around in gardens and uh, bang nails with hammers and stuff. Yeah, and, and and air raid shelters. Tell us about what what you got up to in air raid shelters. Yeah, I am, um, as a lot of people know, I'm just a geek. And uh, <clears throat> we lived in a far, an old farmhouse by the time I was ten, and in the garden was an old air raid shelter, and it's a, one of these. It wasn't a, an above ground job; it was dug into the ground, and it's basically a rabbit hole in reality but um, I discovered you could make explosives out of um, a weed colour and some sugar and um, I did make uh, treacle tins full of this stuff and uh, set it off in the air raid shelter it makes some quite quite impressive bangs and occasionally a rabbit came flying out too really really dangerous in reality because of course uh, sodium chlorate <clears throat> if it's not pure will go off by itself so I was I was, I, I was then and I'm generally quite lucky I think Yes. So, so you, you did have this sort of love of science. You, you found a nuclear power book in a travelling library. Was that a bit of a trigger for you? Yeah, it was. <clears throat> Actually, the place before that farmhouse, we lived in a village called Sprockborough, outside Doncaster at that point. <clears throat> and the library came in what looked like a giant bus. And I remember finding a book <clears throat> on Calder Hall. And <clears throat> it was written in a way that an eight-year-old who knew what an atom was but didn't know anything more than about inside it I could read it and it made sense to me <clears throat> and um, I was so intrigued by that I ended up writing a piece for uh, one of my homework exercises on how a nuclear power station worked I actually had a little diagram of <clears throat> a fuel rods and control rods and and un I understood what a chain reaction was from that book I mean it was beautifully written so you know to get a little eight-year-old kid to get to understand that was good and then ended up standing up in class and trying to explain it to the teachers and the rest of the class. And which also links to my other love, which I've always loved teaching. And uh, uh, again, there, but for the grace of God, I'd have still been a teacher at this point. But the, it was a, an early example of just fascination with geekery. Clever, geeky things, just I find, I find exquisite in the way that some people look at um, paintings or I, I listen to music. And some bits of technology i just find astonishing to this day i still i'm intrigued by computing and i've actually got a raspberry pi sitting behind the screen that i'm talking to you on uh, which is running some software that i wrote some financial modeling software it's about three about a quarter of a million lines of code and it runs on the this raspberry pi orders of magnitude faster than it ran on the expensive workstations when i was a banker in the later career astonishing yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll come on we'll come on to that um but you went to maltby grammar and then you went to study chemistry at st Catharines college oxford and we were just chatting earlier because i was looking at maltby uh school um and we were talking about uh, uh professor alan bullock the master of st Catharines college who actually came to open 
some of the facilities in 1967 and that's therein lies the connection between that's the link so i'd um by that point by the time i was in the lower sixth um i was clear i wanted to go to university and was thoroughly enjoying the sciences and i'd had a sales pitch from my form master who had been who'd read military history at keeble and then gone on to be a cook on the murray expedition to everest so I was thinking about that and um, the school had gone comprehensive in, in my second year. It was about 2000 kids and we'd had some huge new facilities built and Alan Ball came to open it. And I was ended up as his chaperone showing him around the place. And I got a sales pitch from Alan Bullock um, and the rest is kind of history. And of course, when I got to CATS, um, I was very lucky because there were, there was a, it was the biggest intake of chemists of all the, all the Oxford colleges. And it eventually became known as, oh, yeah, that place with the northern chemists. So I felt really quite at home there. <laughs> oh, that's good. And, and, and that sort of transition in, into university, you start to sort of, uh, it sounds like you were always pretty self-starting yourself, you know, and a transition to university was perhaps easier for you than it might have been for other people. But were there any sort of standout moments there where you thought, this is really me or this really isn't me? There, were, uh, there was an initial shock horror because the way i dealt with my a-levels was to get the um uh, the exam syllabus and write out a complete set of notes against the syllabus um so felt quite comfy so i tried the same thing so i walked into the oxford university press to get the uh, the syllabus for the exams and under under chemistry and natural sciences chemistry it said at the end of three years gentlemen will be examined in chemistry at which point there was a, a slight sinking of the heart and I, oh my god now what am i going to do <clears throat> because of course you're taught partly in lectures which are of variable quality and partly in the tutorials, which is where the real learning is done. And so uh, <clears throat> I managed to engineer it that for almost my entire time uh, at, uh, at CATS as an undergraduate, I had the tutorials on a Monday morning at 11 o'clock and I'd start work on Sunday night about six or seven and just work straight through the night and then spend the rest of the week playing bass. And um, there were only two bass players really for, for the whole of Oxford. So I played all sorts of stuff and uh, you know, led the uh, the combined Oxford Cambridge bass section when we did concerts in Oxford and Cambridge in uh, in 1970, and just had huge fun. But it was the mix of being able to learn and in a in a context where uh, curiosity was encouraged. So I did um, uh, special bits in uh, quantum chemistry in the second year, um, just because I was interested, and that that kind of led me off to spectroscopy in the end. But it was a, a very open environment where you could you could ask questions and you could go and talk to people and you were encouraged. You weren't just forced down the standard syllabus, which was the great bit. And it really meant that my you're right. I'm a, I am a self starter. I follow my nose and I'm curious. I could be curious about all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you stay on and you do a PhD. You're, you've got this interest in computing on the one hand and double bass playing on the other hand. What was sort of going through your head about what am I going to do next when I leave this place? Well, my original plot was I wanted to carry on and teach. And uh, I mean, for the last two years, I, I taught physical chemistry for Oriel and, and absolutely loved it. And at one point, you know, I was, I was giving tutorials on the cricket square in the parks with a student on each side next to the beer tent watching a game of cricket. And it, the job's gone downhill ever since then. Um, but I was also pretty, pretty thick and didn't realise until very late on that the guys who taught me were only... You know, eight or ten years older and they had tenure and so I was going to be hanging around for a very long time before I got you know what I would consider a proper job um, I've seen guys above me wandering off around the world doing postdocs in all sorts of strange places and at that point <clears throat> I was um, about to get engaged and was feeling a bit more responsible probably than I do now to be honest 
Um, <clears throat> I've never, never felt that responsible, but I, I took it very seriously. And so the two employable skills I had were double bass playing and computing. So I thought, oh, I could go and be a bass player. I just need to do some, um, get some experience in, in London. So I need a job that will pay the mortgage and let me finish work at four o'clock in the afternoon. So I applied for and got a job as a training tax inspector in Oxford number one district across from the parks. And then the other option was computing. So I applied to a number of places, including uh, the consulting side of Arthur Anderson. And of course, at that point, um, there weren't many people who knew anything about computing. So I walked in already fluent in, I think, four different computer languages and picked that one, thank God, and kept bass playing as my hobby. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so at the time, Arthur Anderson was one of the big five accounting firms. And you're, in, as you said, the sort of consultancy division designing and installing large complex computer systems in government, insurance, financial industry. And therein lies the sort of um, pivot point almost, I suppose, from your geekery side of, of chemistry and research and computing into the whole world of insurance and finance and so on. So how, how did you find that sort of transition? Did it grab your imagination? Oh, initially, when I, when I arrived at Arthur's, um, we were effectively given a sales pitch by each of the, the partner groups and asked which one we found interesting. And I vividly remember saying, well, they all sound interesting, but I'm not, don't want anything to do with this financial stuff. It's just shifting bits of paper around. I can't imagine anything more boring than that. <clears throat> and six years later, I turned into, I was um, doing basically financial IT stuff, including a very sophisticated model for, for um, structuring in the UK, um, financing of oil rigs and ships and things like that, which is, it's an optimization problem. So, you know, plays to the maths of a, of a chemist um, and found it intriguing because it was, it was about rules and how you could play games with the rules. And it was almost in a different way, the sort of um, structural thinking that you have as a, as a computing guy in designing big systems, you have to think top down, what's the outcome? How do I make it work bit by bit? <clears throat> and understanding finance like that meant it meant you could then play tunes on it and look for the discontinuities and, and, and non-linearities in the rules and find ways of using them to somebody's advantage, to a client's advantage, I suppose, that's what we're putting it. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's not simply understanding the rules and coding the rules and seeing what the, the outcome is. It is actually working within that framework to find a positive it, outcome. It, yeah, it's looking at the rules to see what you can and can't do. And if there are any, <clears throat> any irregularities that allow you to be creative, and we'll come to that when we talk about perhaps um, nuclear safety regulation later on. <clears throat> but for example, <clears throat> in the 80s, um, the Japanese were exporting all around the world and their balance of payments figures were outrageous. They were massively asymmetric. <clears throat> and the Japanese government um, decided that they would allow Japanese companies to lease assets. So basically what happened is a Japanese um, group of investors could buy an aeroplane, which appears on the trade books as an import, and then lease it out to an airline abroad. And because it's a lease, which is about using the thing, it's about the, um, the benefits of ownership, but not the ownership itself, it doesn't count as an export. So by financing all these aircraft, the, the balance of trade figures were brought back a bit nearer into balance. And so for a period, we were financing all sorts of aircraft <clears throat> around the world with Japanese finance, Japanese tax benefits. <clears throat> and the Japanese tax benefits themselves came out of the code, the Japanese tax code, which they bought 
from Germany in the early 1900s. So as the Japanese society was modernizing, <clears throat> they decided they needed a tax system. So, oh, the Germans have a good one, so they bought that. And if you understood German tax law and German tax rules, that's how the Japanese system worked. So there, there are all sorts of parallels there. But again, it's the how those rules work and how you can then use them to structure those financings <clears throat> to give the lowest cost of capital for the aircraft owner and op uh, aircraft operator, uh, whilst at the same time preserving all the attributes of what qualifies as a lease in Japan. Brilliant. So, so while we're on aeroplanes and we're on rules, give us the Douglas Bader quote and let's just talk oh, about nuclear yeah. regulation. Yeah, <laughs> Douglas Bader, amazing guy. Uh, everybody knows he was shot down <clears throat> and eventually flew again. And after he'd been shot down and um, had his tin legs made, he went back to the Air Force um, wanting to fly an active service. And he went in front of the Air Ministry Board. Um, <clears throat> and they said to him, uh, Squadron Leader Bader, the rules are entirely clear. Disabled people aren't allowed to fly an active service. <clears throat> and he said, gentlemen, rules are made for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools, which are you. And he was flying the next day. And that, that approach to rules is something that everybody has to remember that rules are not there as absolutes, they're there for the guidance of wise men. <clears throat> and when, when you're faced with a rule, you always need to stand back and say, why are we doing this? What's the outcome this is intended to deliver? Because ultimately, if you don't focus on those outcomes, you will make unintended mistakes, never mind stupid mistakes. So outcomes, that, that's the first time really, and I, I heard that quote as a, as a kid. And, and that was the first time I really thought about outcomes and it also goes back to the IT thing which you start with the big outcome you're trying to deliver and work down but that Bader quote <clears throat> should be I think welded on the walls of um, all the regulators around the world um, and all the companies who are regulated because it's really important to understand why those rules are there and to make sure that that you are respecting the intent behind them. Yes, yes, because it's something that we've we've talked on previous episodes, and um, it's sort of timely at the moment for nuclear, where we uh, are a regulated industry, and uh, and rightly so. Um, but often the the rules or the the safety cases or the operating and management procedures have become complicated uh, and increasingly burdensome and bureau bureaucratic. Uh, and the question is: Is there a better way to improve safety? By thinking in those terms. You've got to think about the outcomes. If you don't, you're doing everyone a disservice. And those, that disservice ultimately ends up in, you know, at, at, the, at the top level, it's about the economy of the UK. You know, if we don't have the regulation um, as effective, as optimal as possible in terms of the outcomes that you have to deliver, anything less than that, as suboptimal, will be more expensive. You know, it's things like we have to redesign the entire energy system for the UK now as we replace it all going to net zero. And if that is a materially suboptimal design, then all that happens is our grandchildren end up with an economy which is less effective, more expensive, and their standard of living lower. Those, it, it, those outcomes are so important. Um, and we always have to keep coming back to that, I think. And in the nuclear industry, it's interesting to compare and contrast the, the style of behaviour of the ONR and the Canadian regulator with... The rules-based regulators and the the outcomes-based regulators of the ONR, for whom I have a, a huge respect, and the Canadians, should be in the end the best ones for everybody. But we just need to make sure that people remember that all the time it's about outcomes, and not about those rules, because the rules they're always translations, you know, and they're always imperfect translations. And and I'll give you another um, little story about this. <clears throat> I was. Um, 
involved in quite a lot of the early PFI deals. And when you, if, if a PFI deal has to stop, there's a termination point. And at that point, it's got to be sorted out. The payment, it, the money has to be paid to pay off the debt and so on. And it's actually a piece of algebra. The termination calculation at any point is, is a simple piece of algebra. And the worst complexity in it is a big sigma sign, there's a big summation sign. And when you let a lawyer turn that into words, you can always find holes in it. We actually made money at Chase <clears throat> helping one of the airlines um, interpret the, the words that a lawyer had used for a termination payment. And one simple line of algebra is perfect you know, to the penny. And it's those translations <clears throat> that you see that are imperfect. And so when you see rules created out of outcomes, the odds are some of those rules will have translation errors in them, unintentional, and you always need to remember why they're there and what you're trying to do. That's great advice. So, so you mentioned Chase. So you did move to Chase Manhattan Bank um, in New York, which is a big move. Uh, what was what was behind that and how did that go? So it is the link to the financial, financial software I was doing at um, Arthur's. And um, Chase had a big financial model, again, to, uh, to price and structure um, leases for aircraft and ships. But in the States and in other countries, it's far more sophisticated um, with third-party debt in there and all manner of uh, clever structuring rules. And their software uh, made them a lot of money and they wanted somebody to come and run it and to, um, to even improve it. Um, and the first bit of this was um, the job interview was, was the booziest lunch I've ever had to this day. And I still know idea. I got home after it, but it, it clearly worked on me. But we arrived in New York <clears throat> with a seven-month-old and a border collie. And um, one of my enduring visions <clears throat> is coming out through JFK. And the poor dog had been in a crate on the aircraft uh, for God knows how long before. And he was a very clean dog and he was absolutely popping. And we were given him in a baggage, a baggage reclaim. And so we left the airport with a big trolley with a couple of suitcases on, seven months old in a pushchair, and this dog on the lead, busting to get outside. And uh, st seeing him standing there against a concrete bollard <laughs> on the sidewalk with his leg up and this look of utter bliss on his face. It's one of those things I will never forget. Um, but it was a it was a huge fun and it was uh, it was a real experience because landing in New York, we arrived in January with snow everywhere. Um, magical experience the whole time being on Wall Street in the in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, and you've seen some of it in the films. It, it was surreal. One of the guys in our team had been in the CIA in Vietnam and, um, you know, behind the line specialist. And when he left there, he'd become a repo man for aircraft. So part of Carl's background uh, was repossessing aircraft on uh, when people had um, <laughs> uh, um, failed on their finance payments. So we had some very interesting people in the bank. Um, and it was a different world altogether and a real education for me. And as ever, I just love interesting things. So I just followed my nose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it and it sounds you know your, your period at, at Chase Manhattan, you progressed through the the organisation. You led a division of the bank, in, and you ended up as managing director uh, there. What what do you think it was about you that led to that sort of career trajectory so quickly? Curiosity. <clears throat> so I was initially running that software business, <clears throat> and through that got to learn a lot about <clears throat> um, about banking because you know the numbers are the if you like, they're, they're the language of banking. <clears throat> and I realized after a couple of years, I actually understood a lot of the banking behind these deals. And so I was um, asked to jump over the fence and move from being 
the guy that did the numbers and the run the numbers business to the working in the deals themselves and then um you know the maths behind it isn't difficult the commercial structures are entirely rational if you've got a scientific background most of banking in those days anyway it's a bit different now but most banking in those days was entirely amenable to someone with a good scientific background and and you know as a, as a physical chemist you're basically a failed mathematician but it's still good enough to get your brain around uh, all the banking stuff if you can do a um, some of the geometric series you can get a lot of the uh, conventional banking logic so it was it was curiosity which is the the hallmark of everything I've ever done I'm I uh, even today if somebody asks me what I, what I do I do things I'm interested in with people I like and that's basically what where I've evolved to over the years flipping over the fence to running the international leasing um, team uh, with people you know from New York to Tokyo and Hong Kong Australia and London and so on was was just massive fun and um, what happened then was um, was a big reorganization inside the bank and um, they were going to move us to be part of the other side of the leasing team which dealt with photocopiers and post office vans and trucks which is commodity stuff and, uh, we all took one look at that and went no thank you <clears throat> and so um, we arranged a little personal M&A and we moved the entire team to uh, Warburg's, which is um, a, a fantastic, well, was a fantastic traditional um, British merchant bank. But we all quit within an hour of each other. So the guys in Tokyo um, and Hong Kong were having dinner with a country manager late at night and we were having an early breakfast. And it took them several hours to realise that the whole team had um, suddenly disappeared. And uh, one of the enduring memories of that was at about 11 o'clock in the morning two very large security guys walking into my office, <coughs> one on each side of me, picking me up by my arms, by my uh, upper arms, lifting me off the floor, walking out the car park with me and dropping me and uh, suggesting that I might not like to uh, darken their doors ever again. Thank you very much. Um, That's one way to leave an organisation, isn't it? <laughs> it's uh, it great. And uh, we settled into Warburg very quickly and um, ended up um, doing all sorts of fun. And that's why became involved in projects much more and um, was one of the two guys in Warburg's behind what's now known as HS1, having financed Eurostars and TGVs, which is what I was supposed to be doing in the first place before that. Um, and actually just back to the, the geekery and the, the love of fun, the way that we sold the TGV investments to uh, to bankers, whereas we managed to persuade T um, SNCF to put on a special train. And on this train down to tour, uh, we had all the potential bankers and investors on the train, had a wander around tour, and on the way back, the particularly important ones, we invited up into the cab to see what it was like in the cab of the TGV doing 186 miles an hour. And I have to say, um, silver-haired samurai bankers from Tokyo turning into little seven-year-old boys again. So I'm going to move things forward a little bit more. So you, you then uh, moved to KPMG. You found and you were chairman of the Global Infrastructure Projects Group, and we've talked about projects, but you also started to get involved as a senior advisor to five successive secretaries of state responsible for energy. And you were expert chair of the Office for Nuclear Development in what was then the Department for Energy and Climate Change, now part of Bayes. Um, and I'm thinking, how did you approach that? And what would be your advice to other people who are providing advice into government on energy matters? How can that advice really land well with those who have got so much on their plate? The first thing to remember is that the, the public sector is chock full of incredibly well 
intentioned good people trying to do their very best to make a difference. The way they do it is very different to the private sector and what you cannot do is to march into the public sector with the arrogance of a classic British banker and just say, just get out of the way, let me show you how to do this. You need to understand how they work, how their values work, how they, <clears throat> how they develop policy, why they develop policy. <clears throat> and only when you've understood the outcomes that they're trying to achieve there can you then start to help them with a different perspective. And uh, by the time I went in to, to do that job, which was originally to sort out waste and decommissioning, for new nuclear, that was um, end of 2006, beginning 2007. Um, I'd already been on the board of the European Investment Bank since 2003, put there by Treasury. I'd led a review of the rail industry for Alistair Darling in 2004, but I'd done lots of work on uh, what I'm now not allowed to talk about, the PFI schemes. But those were, um, initially we spent all our time working on the public sector side, helping them create good deals, which the private sector could then bid to. And it was through that, uh, that I started to understand public sector values and you know when you're um, designing the payment mechanism for a PFI hospital what matters well the production line is the operating theatre so operating theatres being unavailable is, a, is an utter disaster the chief exec's um, office being a bit dusty doesn't doesn't matter at all by comparison and it's understanding the values and then making sure that you translate those values in a way that the private sector can understand so the first thing is to understand your client. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the message for everybody anyway. But, the, but from a private sector perspective, it's, it's a big shock for most people to see how the public sector works. And it's frankly rude and arrogant if you don't take the time to think and understand what the public sector guys are doing. Because we, we have to help. You know, which, whichever, whoever your client is, you ha in helping, you have to understand what your client needs, and it is different. And whatever people will tell you, the idea of captains of industry going in to run departments, forget it. it you can't do it because you need to understand the differences first. So it was that transition I'd be, you know, from, from HS1 through to working on air traffic control and so on and PFI schemes, working with really good people in the Department of Health and Department of Transport and then eventually in Treasury and understanding it was that understanding that allowed me then to, to fit in. and But at the same time, not to lose my identity, but still to sit there and to ask the bloody difficult questions, but hopefully always politely. And, and also it's then sometimes easier. So in my role as the expert chair of the Office of Nuclear Development, I faced out and the director, the wonderful Mark Higson, faced in. And so we could both have conversations understanding the context of each other. Um, and help each other and help the ministers. And it was also interesting sitting in with secretaries of state when companies came in. Um, and in some cases they had, they had learnt to think about what the public sector wanted. Other cases it was just blatant lobbying. <clears throat> and the usual consequence of they walked out the door was, well, that's half an hour of my life, I'm not going to get back. Um, uh, it, it's astonishing how um, many corporates do not understand that a secretary of state has different objectives to them and if you can't make your sales pitch to support his objective you're wasting your time so you need to think about what it is that makes the secretary of state tick what his objectives are what good looks like to him and in some cases those are very short-term measures but if you help the secretary of state with the long-term consequences you can help the guy who you know, male or female you help them create a legacy and there aren't many legacy opportunities 
delivered. But in energy, what we're going through now is it's as big as 1948 in the welfare state. It's that scale of legacy. But to help the ministers do that, you have to be able to translate into their language mm. the opportunities to get there. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, the sort of nuclear perspective on that, I guess one of the challenges that we face as a sector, I mean, there are, there are many challenges, of course, but seeing what does nuclear look like in 2050, which will clearly be different from now because none of the AGRs will be operating. There'll be a number of PWRs we, we anticipate, we hope, advanced modular reactors perhaps, but it's thinking about nuclear energy differently. It's not just about electricity and base load. There's the potential for heat and hydro, uh, And also as part of a very different energy landscape. So nuclear isn't about electricity. We have to think about primary energy because what we're replacing now is the primary energy. It's where, it's where the energy actually comes from. And so when we talk about hydrogen, you know, that's, not the prim that's not primary energy, it's a vector. It's a transport mechanism, ammonia is a transport mechanism. Nuclear produces heat and it's a variable quality heat. So the steam that comes out of a PWR, I remember a, uh, an ex-CGB guy describing to me as being uh, basically wet fog. The steam that comes out of very high temperature devices is, is different, but the high, temp the high temperatures themselves can be used to make um, electrolysis far more efficient. You know, uh, we all know about um, delta G's, delta H minus T, delta S, that T makes a big impact. Um, so you can use the heat for lots of different purposes, for making hydrogen, for process heat for, for industry. And it's thinking about nuclear as a simple source of primary energy and not simply a, fun a fancy kettle, which is where they've been viewed in the past. And here's that, that Again, outcomes-based thinking. So in rebuilding the energy system, it's what are the primary source of energy? It's electricity from renewables, it's heat from nuclear, it's hydrogen from steam reformed methane, but it's the methane then and the CCS that goes with it and of course hydro. But that's it, guys. And 80% of the energy we use today is shifted as liquids or gases down pipes, the fossil stuff. That's all got to be created from scratch. But the other 20% near enough, which is electricity, you know, size will be please God, we'll still be running then with a 20-year life extension, but all the rest of it, the AGRs are gone, but the renewables have got very short remaining useful lives by comparison with nuclear plants too. So it is a complete start from scratch. And nuclear, um, much as some people might not like it, is an utter fundamental. And when you get the financing right, back to my previous life, the cost of electricity from nuclear power stations is competitive with renewables. And we just have to get over the um, the little bits of data points and understand the context. So whilst um, Hinkley's £92.50, that's not financed in the way that you want to do for the long run. Um, Sizewell and EDF are already saying between £40 and £60. And I'm, as I'm sitting here, that as you polish this, those numbers will go down. And I can easily foresee um, reactors, both big and small, in the high 30s, at which point, you know, if we don't do this right, if we don't build a proper system in the sense that an engineer understands the word system, then we are damaging the economic competitiveness of the UK. And frankly, anybody who is thinking like that should be ashamed on behalf of their grandchildren. Mm. Oh, thanks very much, Tim. So, Tim, I've got one last question for you. Um, and this is looking at your younger self maybe wondering what to do, maybe at the school, maybe just finished the tour and the opening of the new facilities and so on. 
what would be the one piece of advice you'd give yourself at that point? It's, it's where I've ended up, which is always pursue things you're interested in. Because if you're not interested in it, you'll not do very well. And if you're in a job that you're not interested in, you're bored, go and find another one. We can move. I mean, when, when I started work, the, the general assumption was you started a job when you left school or university and you pretty much stayed there till, uh, till hell froze over. That's not where we are now. And you need to follow your curiosity and your interests. And, you know, I, I've said before now, if, if I hate what I'm doing, I'll go and paint white lines on the road rather than be bored. You've got, you, you must enjoy it. Because, you know, if work is almost your hobby as well, you're really lucky. And I, I have been extremely lucky. But it is that follow the things you're interested in. I mean, what is not necessarily entirely obvious is that uh, as a kid, I was immensely introverted, desperately shy. And it was walking out on the stage in Sheffield City Hall with the bass, having been at rehearsals for a concert with the orchestra, and suddenly realising that there's 2,200 people out to my left-hand side. And I, uh, it never dawned on me before. And I was scared witless. But it, I came through it because I enjoyed what I was doing. And I've learnt to perform and I've learnt you know, the social skills to, to, I hope, make a bit of an impact. But it's all about following your curiosity and your, your passions. Be passionate about things and enjoy them and use them. And don't do things for jobs that bore you witless. Just don't do that. Well, what great advice. Tim, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. It's been very therapeutic. enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you